Don't don't sit down. Don't sit down. Don't sit. Down. We're gonna read our <clears throat> read our text, and then I'll 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 speak to some of that. I'm gonna be in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13, standing together in honor of the of the Lord and His Word. Let love be genuine. Abhor or hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. I'm going to ask you to pray again. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this morning as we open your word to this text, this Advent season, this Advent day of hope, um, that you teach us to be people that rejoice in hope and that live as a, with, a, with an exuberant, joy-filled hope as we go. I um, just pray that your, your spirit preaching a more profound second sermon than anything I could say. You give us eyes to see and ears to hear you today, um, loud and clear. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> Thank you for that uh, prayer and encouragement. And um, yeah, just to update you a little bit or, or kind of fill in some of the gaps. Um, the primary office for the Kentucky Baptist Convention is in Louisville, but I'm going to actually stay, <clears throat> my family and I will stay living in Wilmore, and um, I will stay a, a member of Commonwealth City Church. Uh, this morning, actually, Maria is leading a women's brunch with uh, Lauren Vernon, who is Kurt Vernon's wife, one of our other, uh, one of our other elders, that they're le- co-leading a women's brunch today, and, and that's something that, that she's they really enjoyed having a leadership voice in, and so she couldn't be with us today, and the girls, our girls are actually helping her do that. Um, you know, get, get ready for things like that. So we're going to stay as part of the family at Commonwealth City Church, but I will move into a non-vocational role, meaning I won't work there in any capacity, um, <clears throat> that my full-time job will, will be serving the state of Kentucky and Kentucky Baptist churches uh, to multiply and to plant and see more churches planted, to mentor some of the church planters that we currently have. Uh, and just to give you a little insight as to what that looks like and what that looks like for our state. And, and the state of Kentucky, there's uh, uh, some recent research, I think it was done back in 2021, so, so it's even probably a little different than it is today than it is then, but about 84% of Kentuckians on a given Sunday are not in any faith family gathering of any kind on a Sunday morning. So four and a half million people roughly live in the state of Kentucky. That means roughly 3.8 million on a Sunday morning, every, every Sunday morning, find themselves in no fellowship of believers or gathering of believers whatsoever. I can't speak to if they're believers in Jesus. I'm not the judge of people's hearts. I'm just telling you they're not in churches. Uh, In Anderson and Franklin counties, there's about 76,000 people made up between these two counties, Um, which if we were to, if those those same statistics were to be uh, consistent here, that means that of the 76,000 people that make up Anderson and Franklin County, 65,000 aren't in church on a given Sunday. That's your neighbors, that's your friends, your coworkers, the people you see at Walmart and Kroger, the people your kids play Little League ball with. 80, almost 85% aren't a part of a faith family whatsoever. So we have a big task. We have a big task. We want to see the state of Kentucky um, saturated with the gospel of Jesus. We want to see the world saturated with the gospel of Jesus. In fact, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14, it says that, that one day the Knowledge of the glory of God is going to cover the earth like the waters cover the seas. Um, and we can be sure that that will happen in the state of Kentucky as well. And in, in terms of it being our yard, we want to be part of that. We want to be part of that. Um, if we were to move that percentage number by just 1%, by just 1%, if we were to move it from 84 to 83, 
it would take 300 churches running 100 people in each. Brand new, brand new. They're not coming from another church. Brand new. Just to move that in 1% each year. And so this, it's, a significant, it's a significant task ahead of us. And you are, have been participating in that. You are participating in that. And I trust that you will continue to be participating in that. And so that's one of the, it's a, one, one of the reasons that I feel so, so strongly about this opportunity. And I just want to thank you for your encouragement. I thank you in advance for your prayers. Um, thanks for loving my family really well. And we're really excited to see how the Lord will use not just Hope Church, but 2,400 Kentucky Baptist churches across the state. Uh, to plant more churches, to see more people come to the knowledge of who Jesus is. Um, as we get into today, we're going to be in Romans chapter 12, but maybe a little non-traditional uh, Christmas service or Christmas Advent ser- service, as, as we will be centering on the, the theme of hope here shortly. Um, we'll get to that. You saw it in the text that we read. I want to give you a little background. In, in Romans chapter 12, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that Romans chapter 12 is, has 11 chapters before it. Now, we don't have time today to unpack all of Romans 1 through Romans 11, but I, I bring your attention to that because what is discussed in Romans chapter 12, these little proverbial sayings that the Apostle Paul is writing to us, that let love be genuine, hate which is evil, um, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation. They're like little proverbs kind of laced throughout this chapter. They are built on the shoulders of Romans 1 through 11. If you got a letter in the mail... You wouldn't flip to the 12th paragraph and read it only. You know, you would read all the paragraphs that lead up to it. And like I said, we don't have time to do that today, but I just want to remind you of kind of what's happened in the journey of Romans 1 through 11. Many of you um, are aware of this, but this was a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome. He wrote it when he was imprisoned. He was uh, actually, he expected his death to be near. Um, By the direction of the Holy Spirit, he wrote... Uh, a letter that summarized and clarified the gospel so that it could be given and, 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 and equipped, they could, he could equip what he considered the most influential church of the day, the Church of Rome. It would be like today, I mean, the United States of America, pretty influential country, pretty influential nation. It would be similar to recognizing um, our influence. It's like, hey, th- this is something they need to know as they continue to carry uh, the message of God. So this is written to the church or the Christians in Rome. He, he summarized the gospel. Many of you um, may be well-versed in what's something called the Romans Road. Anybody ever heard of that before, the Romans Road? Um, I know that I was early in my childhood and really in, in, in my upbringing, I was confronted and even memorized the Romans Road as a journey through the book of Romans into what, how we understand and see Jesus as our Savior. Uh, you might be familiar with it, but you also might be familiar with maybe not the terminology Romans Road, but, but things like Romans 3.23, for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, um, but the gift of God is eternal life. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that God demonstrated his love for us in this when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I can keep on going that, that the book of Romans uh, is essentially Paul's you know, summarization of the gospel to give us really clear um, and concrete understanding of the message of Jesus. And so Romans 12 shows up as a hitch to, connected to all of those other chapters. And it starts off in the beginning, Romans 12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, present your bodies as acts of worship, living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord. And don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be 
transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know, the reality is, it is easy to be conformed to the pattern of this world. It's easy, and we're all guilty of it, in one way, shape, or form, conformed in some capacity to the pattern of this world. It's easier now, I feel like it's easier now than it ever has been before, and even in this season, okay, this is not gonna be a sermon on the do's and don'ts of secular Christmas, okay, but it's easy to get caught up in the, the wave of Christmas from a secular or a societal standpoint and miss the gospel of Jesus. And so I think this is important for us, for Paul to, to write this in Romans chapter 12 to say, hey, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world anymore, but in the journey you've been on and understanding Jesus and understanding your salvation through Jesus, we're to be people that live transformed. And then he offers us this in Romans 12, 9 through 13, of what a transformed life might look like. What a transformed life might look like. He says this, let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. Um, you know, the, the word of the year, Webster's just released its word of the year for 2023. As we, as we, you know, it's a time of year where everything's like the year end, like the great best movies, best songs, most played, whatever. The word of the year for 2023, maybe you heard this this week or not, is the word authentic. Uh, it's not surprising that that's the word of the year. We live in a day and age where um, the origin or the trustworthiness of a source is constantly debated. Things are fake news or real news uh, or AI you know, generated or, or, or whatnot. And we need to know, is that authentic? Can I trust that? Can I believe that? Uh, not a surprise that that's our word of 2023. But we also find that it's right here, that we're to let love, our love be genuine. If you have another version of the Bible, it might say, um, let your love uh, you know, be free from hypocrisy. Uh, be free from hypocrisy. Now, now you've probably heard uh, uh, the phrase hypocrite before. You know what it, what it means to be hypocritical or or to be a hypocrite. The the, the reality is a a hypocrite is is not someone that manipulates um, just from a, a posture of deceit. A hypocrite is somebody that is driven by pride. When you look at Jesus and his interactions with the Pharisees through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, he gets really frustrated. Uh, with the, many of the religious leaders, and he gets frustrated with their hypocrisy, specifically how prideful they are. When it comes to your love for yourself or for other people, does pride ever drive it? Do you ever love just so that you'll be loved back, just so you'll be approved of, or just so you'll be recognized? I'm afraid to raise my hand when it comes to that statement because sometimes that can be true. My love might not be as genuine as a transformed life should be. And a great question to ask ourselves is, is that how we've been loved? Did God love us with an ulterior motive? Did God love us driven by um, an ugliness or driven by a, 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 you know, a dormant pride underneath? And the answer is no. He loved us because it's who he is. We'll get to that more in a little bit. We're to not just let our love be genuine or authentic, we're to hate that which is evil. We're to hate that which is evil. Now, really quickly, I could get on a soapbox and we could start creating a laundry list of all the things in our culture and all the things in our world that are evil and that we should hate. And listen, there are plenty of those. We absolutely should hate things in our, that we, we are confronted with in the day-to-day -day life um, that are evil or are wicked. Things like injustice, things like brokenness, things like abuse, things like sickness, things like death. We're, we're, we have a divine permission to hate those things. To, to acknowledge their wickedness. But what if we didn't just hate what is external in the world, 
that's evil? What if we hate what's internal that's evil too? You know, David, the psalmist, wrote in, in, in one of his songs to the Lord, he said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you. You know what we call that? Anything in me that's evil. Point out anything in me that's wicked. And if I'm honest, if I'm gonna truly let my love be genuine, let my love for the Lord be genuine, I can't just hate what's evil in the world, I gotta also hate what's evil in Andrew. I gotta hate the places of pride that's in, that are in my life, or greed, or destructive habits, or thoughts, places of, um, where, where I give anxiety too much of a voice, or worry too much of the microphone. I've gotta hate what's evil in my life. Apostle Paul writes in Colossians chapter three to put to death what's earthly in us. To not tame it, to not train it, but to kill it. That if it's earthly within us, it needs to be put to death. And part of a transformed life is not, let, not only letting our love be genuine, but genuinely hating that which is wicked, both external in our world and internal in our life. And holding fast, the next phrase, holding fast to what is good. You know, James writes that every good and perfect gift we see is a gift from the Father above. Every good and perfect gift is a gift from God. So what is it that we see that's good? Have you ever taken a moment to acknowledge the goodness of God in your life and to hold fast to those things? You know, it's something that, that oftentimes my wife and I will catch ourselves um, maybe dreaming about a future opportunity or dreaming about something or, or even, you know, lamenting something that's going on in our life. And, and both of us will be prompted by the Holy Spirit to just to just be grateful for what we have that's so good, that God's given us that's so good. So not only what is it do we see that's good in the world, but not just what's good in me, but, but who's good in me? Because I think goodness is also the, the, is personified in Jesus, that Jesus is the, the one who is good. And at one point he, he says in, in the gospel, somebody refers to him as good, and he says, how, how, why do you call me good? We know him to be good. We know him to be good not just because of his character, not just because of the way he lived his life, not just because of his sinlessness, but we know Jesus to be good because of his sacrifice. Because he saw us as in desperate need of a savior. And he gave himself for us. So we hold fast to what is good, not just in the world, but what is good in us, which is Christ and his spirit. We love one another like family. It says to, to um, love one another with brotherly affection. Uh, everybody in here understands that your family has a certain amount of grace that nobody else gets. Have you ever noticed that? Your family might get a certain amount of eye roll and a certain amount of grace at the same time, right? Like there are some things your family can do that if anybody else did it to you, they would be cut off. But because it's your DNA, you, you kind of have a, a little more of, a, a, of room for error, a little bit more margin of error. We're used to that. We're used to that. But what if I told you this, that if we rightly understood what Jesus has done for us, that we would actually, in our minds, we would be transformed to the understanding that that. I actually have more in common with somebody that shares belief in the name of Jesus than I do with someone with my own blood that maybe doesn't. I am more family with somebody that follows Jesus than I am with somebody who has my DNA that doesn't follow Jesus. And if we come to that understanding, it should change how we love each other. Notice the next part, it says, no, we love each other like family. Do we have a, a ridiculous amount of grace for one another? But we outdo each other in showing honor. Did you know you can love and be kind to people 
but not honorable at the same time. Sometimes sympathy can drive your loving kindness. Sometimes charity can drive your loving kindness. Sometimes um, compassion can drive your loving kindness. And that's good, that's good. But what the Apostle Paul says of marks a transformed life is when honor drives your loving kindness. And here's what I mean by that. When we say we wanna honor one another, it requires us to, to, to recognize value and it requires us to recognize dignity. People that have made really bad choices still have an immense and exceptional value. Do you know that? People that have made really bad choices. You wanna know how I know that? I'm looking at a bunch. We've all made really bad choices. We've guilty of some pretty, some pretty intense things, uh, none of which is more than this. We all murdered God. And yet, we still have incredible value because we're created in the image of our king, created in the image of our God. So, so honoring people or, or loving people and, and showing honor to one another requires us to call out this value and to call out this dignity. I remember there was a, an event that I was at years ago and I was sitting with a, a group of friends, most of which had a background um, in a military career or military life. And I happened to be sitting with my back to the door of the room, to the entryway. And, we were, all, we were probably talking about you know, sports, whatever game had occurred recently or whatnot. And really quickly over the conversation, everything went quiet and everybody stood up. And I was kind of the last to the moment of standing up because I was unaware of what was entering the room. But as I took note that everybody else in the room was standing up, I stood up and turned around. And as I turned around, I was pretty much face to face with a, a gentleman that was a, a once a general in the United States Army, now retired, and he was standing right in front of me. And you know, I welcomed him, I greeted him, I, I honored him, but I felt embarrassed that I was the last to stand, if you kind of catch my drift. Now, it wasn't out of intention, it wasn't out of, uh, you, know, you know, a lack of a, uh, of, of a desire, it was just out of a lack of awareness of what was going on. But, but I remember that moment, that moment sticks with me because there was something about his presence that required honor. And what if, what if, and I, I'm super respectful for those that serve our country, I'm respectful for those that we refer to as your honor in a legal sense because of a, a, a degree or a position that they might have in, 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 our, in our judicial system. I, I'm super respectful of, and mindful of that. But what if it didn't take a, a nameplate or a badge or a gown or, or something like that to demand honor from us? What if we did it because we've been honored so well by Jesus? that we showed honor to other people as well, that we outdid each other in showing honor, that it became a um, humility contest to see how we could love and serve other people. Then Paul takes, takes a different, kind of a different stance here, or a little, little different pace. He says, don't be slothful in your zeal. Be fervent in spirit. So don't be slothful. Do be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. Let, let's break these down for a minute. Don't be slothful in your zeal. Don't be a lazy Christian. The mark of the Christ follower is always going to be one of passion. In fact, the week leading up to Jesus' death is largely known in Christendom as his Passion Week. Uh, and let me give you a little hint. The, just the, the, the week, that one week of his 33 years on earth, that wasn't the only week he was a passionate man. All the weeks he was a passionate man, and passionate specifically to do the will of his Father. To be a Christian is to be a passionate person when it comes to following Jesus, to be a passionate follower of Jesus Christ. Um, too many times, too many times, we are compartmentalized. 
We are marginal. We are, if it's convenient, followers of Jesus Christ. When the call of a transformed life is that we're a passionate follower. So don't be lazy in your zeal, but be fervent in your spirit. What if I told you that the spirit that's in you doesn't need any help whatsoever in, in breaking out? Doesn't need any help in, in being visible in the world. Doesn't need any help in displaying the goodness of God. But sometimes, sometimes, we might mute it. We might mute him or stymie him. That actually the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. And that spirit, he, he doesn't... He doesn't push us to make much of ourselves. He pushes us to do the last phrase, to serve the Lord. That to not be slothful in our zeal, but to be fervent in our spirit is actually our motivation for how we serve our King, the Lord. If you're married in this room, you have an incredible role as a husband and a wife. But your role as a husband and a wife never stops being a kingdom service first. If you're a dad or a mom in this room, you have an incredible opportunity as a parent. But more than you're a mom or a dad, you have a kingdom service as a parent. If you're an employee or an employer in this room, and you, know, you have responsibilities at work, do you, do you recognize that your job, and whether it's in management or in compliance, or, or in, no matter what, where you work in the flow chart, that you actually have a service to your king? Whatever neighborhood you live in, or if you live maybe out in, the, out in a more rural setting, however far your nearest home to you is, do you realize that you're not just a neighbor because there's a property that shares, you know, somebody that shares your property line, you're a neighbor because it's a kingdom opportunity for you. When we understand the kingdom opportunities around us, we understand that the only way we can serve the Lord in those is to allow the spirit within us to lead us to serve and to honor and to reflect our King. And we go on to this next section, and this is the area I want to lean in the most. You know, it's, it's on the heels of Thanksgiving season. Thanksgiving felt early this year because we had five Thursdays in the month of November. We don't always get that. Um, Thanksgiving is also the, the day I can count on more than any other day in my year that I get to eat gravy. It's great, you know. Some of you are not gravy people in the room. We can do forgiveness prayers later. It's fine. Um, but but if, if you will let me do the metaphor real quick. This next section where, where Paul says, we're to be people that rejoice in hope, are patient in suffering, and are constant in prayer. This is kind of like the ladle dripping over this whole section of Scripture. Okay, this is the ladle where he drips this over the whole section. And, and I want to I actually go in reverse. Um, if we were to take the phrase, we're, we're the trans, a transformed life is one that's constant in prayer. Let's look at, let's let that drip over everything we've, we've talked about. What does it mean? How, how would we be constant? How can we be constant in prayer as our love is genuine. How, how might that inform our love being genuine? You know, I, I've said before, and, and I've caught myself a, as a pastor, I get a lot of requests for, to pray for people, whether it's text messages or Facebook or group me's or email. And, and sometimes I'll think, gosh, I wish I could do more for them, but the least I can do is pray. Right? You ever think that? Well, what if we understood prayer is not the least we could do, but the most we can do? How does that inform my love being genuine? That, that if my first reaction to loving someone is actually praying for them before a word ever comes out of my mouth or an act of service ever comes from my hands or my feet. That we're to be people that are constantly in prayer. I've heard uh, one of the other pastors at our church 
Kurt, he says this. He says, anytime the Bible reminds you that you're to be constant in prayer, continuous in prayer, it also means that God intends to be constant in listening and continuous in listening. That we have a God that always wants to hear from us. How does that inform how we love one another, serve one another, are, are you know, energized and passionate in our zeal, that we are fervent in our spirit. Yes, we're to be people that bathe everything in prayer. Not the least we can do, but the most we can do. Secondly, to be patient in suffering. I think sometimes we think that we get an exception clause from living an obedient life because we're suffering. That, oh, man, at a season that it's easier, or a season that I'm not as maxed, or a season that more things are going my way, I would have more to offer the kingdom. I would have more to serve. Um, thankfully, Jesus didn't take that approach concerning us. That we have a savior that modeled how in the midst of intense suffering that required his life, still loved us genuinely, still honored us fully, still served us faithfully, and was fervent in spirit. We have a perfect model in Jesus. And the truth is, there's not a single one of us in this room that the stars are going to perfectly align to give us the opportunity to not be obedient even in the midst of our suffering. It doesn't say that we need to be uh, you know, resilient in suffering. It says we need to be patient. We need to be patient. We don't need to be impatient in our suffering. We need to be patient in our trials and in our suffering. And then the first one that, that is in the list, but the last one we'll deal with today, is we're to be people that rejoice in hope. I want to really lean in here because today is our Advent Sunday of hope. We're to be people that rejoice in hope. Colossians chapter 3, Paul would, would, would write there, and something that always rings true with me as I read this text, that we're to be people that let the hope of heaven fill our thoughts. You know, when it comes to, when it comes to hope, we have a grammar problem. We have a grammar problem. We say things like, I hope Kentucky wins. You know, I hoped that yesterday. It didn't really work out for me that much. Um, we say things like, I hope I get the promotion or I hope I get the job. I hope our offer gets accepted on that house. I hope that, that I get this for Christmas. You know, all these different things. We, we, we understand in our language an idea of hope that is a maybe or an optional or a, if it worked out that way, that would be nice. The problem is the Bible doesn't speak hope with that kind of grammar. Amen. The Bible understands hope as a certainty as a guarantee and as a faithful promise that we can count on. And when we let the hope of heaven fill our thoughts, it's not, a, it's not an optional I'll get there. It's a, it's a faithful and a guarantee and a promise that we will get there. And because we're already firmly established as citizens of heaven, it should change how we live as citizens on earth. We need to have a right grammar around the word hope. You know, the truth is, I heard Paul David Tripp say this recently. I think he actually tweeted it this morning. Um, Jesus was born to be the one and only solution to the problem everyone has and no one can escape. Think about that. Jesus was born to be the one and only solution to the problem that everyone has and no one can escape. He is our hope. Hope showed up in the form of a baby. And here's what my takeaway is from that. That God doesn't always work the way we think. Hope showed up in the form of a child. Because God needs to remind us that his definition of hope isn't always going to be the way we talk about it. We don't have an uncertain hope. We have one who promised that is faithful. When it comes to the way that we genuinely love, how do we let that exuberant 
hope that we have, that certainty that we have in who Christ is and what he's done for us and what he's promised for us and what he's calling us to and what he's guaranteeing us, how do we let that exuberant hope motivate our genuine love? How do we let that hope motivate how we honor one another? How do we let that hope motivate how we serve the Lord? We should be the most hopeful people on the planet. We should be. Shouldn't have to look past Hope Community Church, no pun intended to the name, to find the most hopeful people on the planet. Um, Our hope should be exuberant. I need some work here in this area too. I'll be honest, just because I'm saying our hope should be exuberant doesn't mean that mine always is. Now, I like to refer to myself as a realist. My wife likes to tell me I'm a pessimist. Okay, I don't know if you have that conversation in your household, um, but I tend to have it in mine. And sometimes my hope, realism, pessimism, will sometimes forget that God has, God can, and God will. It can. I just sat down with, with somebody this week. We were talking about some struggles that he was facing in his marriage. There was a certain hopelessness that he was communicating of things are always just going to be this way. There's never going to be any victory in this area. There's never going to be any breakthrough. Some of you guys or gals might be able to relate. And I reminded him that while it's easy and tempting to feel that way, while your feelings are true, while the emotions you're facing are, are real and right in front of you, that you're not the exception to God's promise. Philippians chapter one, verse six says that he will complete what he starts on the day of Christ Jesus. And his family in this situation and the hopelessness that he was confessing to me didn't mean that he was gonna be the exception to that truth. Now God might complete it on a different timeline than we would. And he might complete it in a different way than we would think to complete it. In fact, he gave us a child as our hope for the future, right? He gave us a, a little baby born. It wasn't the most conventional way to give us our hope but he's able and capable to do it. But this guy wouldn't be the exception to the rule that our hope is in God and in his promises uh, should be certain and should be, and should be held on to, like we would hold on to, to that which is good, which we mentioned earlier. Our hope in God and his promises um, should be ex- exuberant, abundant, and infectious. And they actually should, should give us the fuel for how we accomplish the, this last verse, verse 13. Let's read verse 13 together from Romans chapter 9, or Romans chapter 12. That we're to contribute to the needs of the saints and we're to seek to show hospitality, okay? Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. If you're not careful, you'll believe that that verse is about the same group of people. To contribute to the needs of the saints and to seek to show hospitality. But it's not. So there is part of us that needs to contribute to the needs that those of us that have a faith in Christ possess. We should be rich in our encouragement. We should be rich in our accountability to, to each other. We should be rich in blessing. We should be rich in how we communicate hope. We should be rich in how we give of our time and generous in, in our time. Um, God has made us, I don't know if you're aware of this, in the United States, he's made all of us rich, even financially compared to the rest of the world. He's given us an abundance of things and he expects us to be generous and open-handed and, and, and co-laborers among all the family of God. We absolutely should do that and we should be motivated to do that as we rejoice in joy. But then there's a second part to this verse. It says we should also be people that show hospitality. Now some of you guys, when you hear the word hospitality, you might think of, you know, like a concierge at a really nice hotel. 
Or you might think of somebody that knows how to plan a, a formal event, knows how to make everyone feel welcome. You might think of a director at a country club. Like There are degree programs in our schools called hospitality management. And they're even for things like this, how to be a good event planner, how to create a warm and welcoming environment, all these different things. That might be where your mind goes with hospitality. The problem is, is we're not reading this in the Greek language. The word hospitality in the Greek language is a, is a compound word between, between two of the words. It's called philozenos. The word philo or phileo, you may have heard, of, it's, it's the word love. So we're to be lovers of xenos. Or maybe you've heard people, um, th- this is sometimes a, a, a moniker that's thrown around of, about people that people might have xenophobia or something like that. It means they're, uh, they're, they're afraid of the foreigner or afraid of the stranger or afraid of the outsider. The word hospitality in your Bible and mine, in its very translation, means that we're to be lover of the people that aren't like us. Not only ethnically or socioeconomically, but in our faith too. We're to be lovers, intentionally welcomers of people that don't share the same hope we do. That don't have the same understanding we have. That don't have the same faith we have. We're to be people that show hospitality. You know what that means? That means we invite those that don't believe what we believe to see exactly what we see, to have exactly what we have, and, and to be entrusted and to be, and to be recipients of the same grace and the same love and ultimately the same hope that we've been recipients of. It's housed in the very word itself. And if we're not careful, we will miss that translation. So now we look back. If we're people that rejoice in hope, that are patient even in our suffering, that are constantly in prayer, it shouldn't take a whole lot of convincing for us to be people that show our hospitality to the lost and dying world. We're talking about hope today. I'm gonna to ask you a tough question. Here's a tough question. When's the last time someone asked you about the hope you have? First Peter chapter three says this, verse 15. It says, but in your hearts, honor Christ as the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense or to give an answer for anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is in you. When's the last time, when's the last time somebody saw the way you live? saw the way you gave, saw the way you honored, saw the way you loved, saw the way you served and said, why do you hope the way you do? When's the last time somebody said, I wanna know why you hope differently than me? And I'm not saying that as a guilt trip, I'm saying that as an invitation. Because this season of Advent, listen, we can, we can do all the things, we can spend incredible time with our family, we can, we, can, we can have incredible worship moments here in this church, even in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplace. We can be faithful and we can be generous and we can be kind and we can be loving. But my hope for our Advent season, for you and for me, is that we live in such a way that it absolutely demands an understanding from the world around us is why do you hope the way you do? Why do you hope the way you do? Why do you hope that way? And if we've lived so far, and never been asked that question, then maybe one of our constant prayers needs to be, Lord, lead me to live my life in such a way that demands other people wonder, where does my hope come from? You know, we know the verse pretty well from the Psalms that says, I look to the hills or to the heavens, right? Where does my help come from? Well, may we be people that can also say, I look to Jesus, he's where my hope comes from. And I hope that this season, this Advent season, and I'll be honest, I don't have a lot of people ask me where my hope is. I have a lot of people ask me to pray for them. I have a lot of people ask me to do this or do that.
But I, I'm saying this to myself as much as I'm saying it to you. I hope this Advent season that one of the blessings God gives us, if we make an dent in 65,000 people in our two counties here, is that to the people we're visible to every single day, whether it's in our work, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, at Kroger, Speedway, wherever, that somebody see us and say, why do you hope the way you do? And the invitation today is really twofold. Number one, if you're with us today, and this hope that I've described, you don't feel like you have, well, you can come and receive it from Christ himself. You can come and pray with one of our prayer counselors that'll be down here, and, and you can have a, a hope that's not a, just an agreement or acknowledgement of what the preacher says, but a hope that's real and personal and that comes to know you and takes up residence in your house, and we call his name Jesus. You can have a personal relationship with Jesus today. And if you're here today and you're a believer in Jesus, and this is the, you know, one of the things that's in our rhythm and in our, we're, we're here, we're committed to worship together on Sunday, then my invitation to you is for you to join me in making commitment to let hope fuel you in a unique way this season. Fill you and fuel you in a unique way. And to pray, to pray boldly, God, lead me to live in such a way that people that see my life ask, where does your hope come from? Let that be our invitation today, to come receive hope or to join the journey with Jesus that says, where does my hope come from? And it come from him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the truth of your word. As we recognize the world around us, as we say those numbers, 65,000 of our family and friends and neighbors and coworkers, classmates and schoolmates, and teachers, all these people in our community, Lord, as we live among them, teach us to be the most hopeful people on the planet. Give us opportunities to give a defense and an answer for the hope that we have in you. Lead us to live in such a way that the world around us says, where does your hope come from? And Lord, may we answer with boldness and with courage and with authenticity that our hope comes from you. Lord, if there are people here today that don't have a relationship with you, I pray that, that you lead them into a relationship where they get to know hope personally. They get to know you, Jesus. That's in your name we pray. Amen.